XV Planets is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Welcome to XV Planets. Greetings, friends and fiends, and welcome back to XV Planets. Transmitting from the Black Lodge, as always, I am your host, Flood, and as always, I am very happy to be here to dive further into the weird with you, and joining me tonight is Walker. How are you, my friend? I'm good. Having a good time. Getting ready for the holidays, getting all our trips in and stuff, so staying busy. Yeah, we're fixing to be bogged down by consumerism and uh, and uh, family obligations for several weeks. Yeah, I have luckily held off playing any Christmas music at the bar outside of the Dolly Parton Christmas album uh, with Kenny Rogers while we decorated. And that's it. That's been it. So Good, good man. Everyone scrooge lives, you know. <laughs> your, uh, your employees, I'm sure, uh, appreciate you very much for that. Oh, yeah. I mean, they can play what they want, but I'm not listening to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, as uh, as two people who have worked in um, you know customer service in one form or another for for many years, I can tell you, folks, the one thing that I really want for Christmas is to never hear about what Mariah Carey wants for Christmas ever, ever, ever again. <laughs> yeah, bah humbug. So tonight, for our final topical episode this season, we're coming back home and we're heading back to the high mountain ranges of Appalachia. For the first time since our Brown Mountain series to tackle one of the stranger mysteries of our uh, of our fabled mountain range, the Moonite people. Now I love how this one kind of came into our orbit because out of the blue one day you threw this uh, this topic out to me and I'm like, get out of my head! I've been looking this stuff up for like the last two weeks, <laughs> and uh, from there it just kind of uh, delved into that. This is just kind of one of our favorite subjects of of local lore, at least. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, you put together, like, all the mystery surrounding it. Like, there's a lot of tangible evidence. There's a lot of, like, Cherokee lore that goes into, you know, that, that these people existed and something happened to them, and we aren't sure what it was. So I, I think, you know, in, in terms of of us getting into it, it, it kind of creeps into the mystery part of XP Planets versus us diving into, like, purely ghosts or, like, let's go look at UFOs and stuff. And it's like, let's look at this mystery that could have all these different tangents and weirdness around it and like get out there right well uh regarding the different theories about what the moon-eyed people were let's actually talk about the the legend of it now the moon-eyed people is a cherokee legend of a tribe of strange people populating the appalachian mountains they were described as extremely short ranging from three to five feet with long white beards pasty white skin little pot bellies and pale piercing blue eyes and supposedly they only came out at night because of their sensitivity to light. It is said that due to their version of light, the Moonai people used the endless cave systems of the mountains to make their homes. Now, what I find really interesting is that unlike a lot of other uh, Cherokee folklore, which is usually he- heavily steeped in the paranormal, the supernatural, and, and just hallucinatory trips that I could... Man, that must have been some good stuff. <laughs> but uh, unlike most of Cherokee lore and legend, they normally describe the Moonai people as a separate tribe, like a separate race of people. Um, so they don't really describe them as supernatural, although I'm sure their uh, their appearance and uh, the fact that they only came out at night didn't really help their re- reputation. Yeah, it seems like if anything in the Cherokee society, they essentially just like lived among them and they battled them a lot. So it was like almost like a warring tribe. Um, right. which, which I think leads a lot into like the Madoc, like the Welsh traveler theory of, you know, but 
none of the other stuff makes any sense. Like the, of the aversion to light staying in the caves and, and being small and, and strange looking. I, I think that that would have popped up somewhere else, you know, if it, if it was truly like another tribe. Yeah. Well, it's, we'll get to uh, Maddock and the Welsh uh, explorers here in a minute, but right you are, like the story goes that the Cherokee and in particular the Creek tribe came up from the south and invaded the territory of the Moonide people, which extended from the Little Tennessee River north to Kentucky with supposedly stone fortifications along the borders of it. And the story goes that the Creek tribe waited until the full moon when the Moonide folk would be at their weakest to attack and they drove them from their caves. Uh, pale-skinned people ultimately fled west into the Smoky Mountains, never to be seen again. So dramatic. Uh, but that was the last, uh, yeah, that was the uh, the last that anybody had heard anything from. The real root of the story uh, of this all comes from the Cherokee, but as you alluded to, there's some possibilities of, of if this tribe was real, there might be a few explanations on how they ended up here. And I'm sure we can all agree at this point that, uh, no, Columbus did not find the Americas first. Plenty of other voyagers have been here before. We know for a fact that the Vikings, you know, Leif Erikson and all of his people came over uh, several times at one point or another. But there's been proof that some other travelers may have braved the seas or may have been able to cross over, you know, certain land masses that now are probably underwater. Uh, so there's a lot of explanation for why some of this stuff, you know, could be based in in reality. Now you brought this one up to me, the uh, the John Seaver, who was the uh, early governor of Tennessee. Yes, I believe he was writing a like history of the area, if I'm not mistaken. He was essentially going around to the tribes and interviewing them, and like. Yeah, he visited Fort Mountain when it was located in Cherokee Nation, so it essentially wasn't Tennessee. I, I, I think he was going in and doing what you know the white settlers did, which was to document the tribes and do what they can to you know conquer as much land as possible. <laughs> I yeah, guess yeah, there's no easy way of putting it. We um, were we were not we were not good to them. But yeah, John Sevier uh, met Aconastota, who was a Cherokee chief uh, in 1782. I guess that's during the Revolutionary War, essentially, mm-hmm. um, and heard a unique story that uh, the chief had learned from like his forefathers, like the chiefs before him. Um, and it was a story of a fort being built by white men across the Great Water. And Aconastota said that these men crossed the Great Water and landed near the mouth of the Alabama River near Mobile. Um, and that l- leads a lot to believe that it was Maddox, um, because that was where the Welsh prince, that was where the lore was. Nobody has ever found any, you know, concrete evidence that he even existed. Right. Um, but he was supposed to have landed in that area and then possibly moved up north into the Cherokee Nation. Yeah, some historians believe that the Moon Eye people were, were simply, you know, as you suggested, early European settlers, possibly Welsh explorers, hence the, uh, the Maddox connection. But stories of them date back to the time before the first pilgrims began to arrive. And these, those are some of the supposed tales of Welsh explorers. Uh, so Maddox, as you suggested, he traveled to America supposedly around 1170 to escape the violence in his country. It's about 300 years before uh, Columbus. But the thing is, there's no conclusive archaeological proof that such a traveler ever existed in the old or new world. 
but it is subject to debate of pre-Columbian travel to the New World. I mean, you know, like we said, we know that Columbus was not the first. Now, this is taken from ye old Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt. You found this, and an introduction of this article is a nice way to sum up some of the folklore surrounding this part of the tale. According to the story, he was a son of Owen Gwynedd, who was the king of North Wales from 1137 until his death in 1170, um, succeeding his father. Uh, he was called Owen the Great, and the first to be styled as the Prince of Wales. And I believe that when he died, all of his sons started to war with each other. And that was why Madoc fled, uh, to, to look for a new land to, to escape the violence. The Maddox story evidently evolved out of a medieval tradition about a Welsh hero's sea voyage to which only illusions survive. However, it attained its greatest prominence during the Elizabethan era when English and Welsh writers wrote of the claim that Maddox had come to the Americas as an assertion of prior discovery and hence legal possession of North America by the Kingdom of England. The Maddox story remained popular in later centuries and a later development asserted that Maddox voyagers had intermarried with local Native Americans and that their Welsh-speaking descendants still live somewhere in the United States. These Welsh Indians were credited with the construction of a number of landmarks throughout the Midwestern United States, and a number of white travelers were inspired to go look for them. The Maddox story has been the subject of much speculation in the context of possible pre-Columbian trans-ocean contact. No conclusive archaeological proof of such a man or his voyages has been found in the New or Old World, however, Speculation abounds connecting him with certain sites, such as Devil's Backbone, um, located on the Ohio River, and also Fort Mountain, which is where we visited, um, to go try to look and for any, you know, to do an investigation about the Moon Eyed people, essentially. Right, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to that here in a minute. And I do love that they brought the Devil's Backbone into this. I've actually been there, and that feeling that we had at Fort Mountain. Uh, it it permeates there just just as much, and but we'll come back to that in a few minutes. I want to backtrack for one second and and head back to Maddox. So, uh, what was what was his old man's name? Um, uh, Owain Gwynedd. Owain Gwynedd. That is very Lord of the Rings. He was um, a member of the House of Aberfra. Aberfra. And the senior branch of the dynasty of Rodri the Great. Are you sure you're not just reading from the Cimmerillion? Or, you know? <laughs> I mean, he's got to get you know his his inspiration from somewhere. Right. So, uh, Owen, we know for, we know, we do know for a fact he existed, like there's historical proof of him. And there seems to be some historical evidence that points towards a, a battle after his death, but nobody's ever been able to link any official documents or archeological proof of one particular son named Maddock who made this voyage. So I'm curious about where this particular interpretation or of the, the legend came from because, like, I dug around on this and I couldn't find the root of, of when this story started, you know? Yeah, like the birthplace of that thought. Um, it, I'm, I'm looking at this thing right now where it says the, the majority of Owain's children are apparently illegitimate. Ah. <laughs> um, and that's where Maddox comes in. And it says – on his, it says illegitimate, and then another parenthesis it says speculative slash legendary. <laughs> um, so, so he yeah. might have not been, but if he was, he was apparently legendary. Yes, and speculative. Yeah, that is uh, <laughs> that is not very good research. We're going to have to talk to them about that. Yeah, well, good old Wikipedia. 
Hoo-hoo. Yeah, well, luckily, that's not our only source. Uh, a lot of what we're pulling from tonight actually comes from local history from the Cherokee Museum in Murphy, uh, which we visited. And that's where we saw the statue for the Moon-Eyed people, which we'll actually, we'll get to that here in a minute when we start talking about some of the more um, physical, conclusive evidence of their existence. Going back to Maddock, though, even though that that was disproven, like stories of European settlers who encountered Welsh-speaking Indians began circulating in the late 17th century. Reverend Morgan Jones claimed to have been captured by a people called the Daig in present-day South Carolina in 1666. 666. Hell yeah. <laughs> and was astonished to learn that they spoke Welsh. According to Jones's account, he preached Christianity to the Daig for a few months before being set free. Amazingly, Jones seemed to have not told anyone of this interesting experience until 20 years after it happened. Another story tells of a Welsh sailor named Stedman who was shipwrecked somewhere on the Gulf of Alabama in Florida in the 1660s and was astonished to discover a group of Welsh-speaking natives. Stedman's account failed to be published until 1777. Interesting. 1666, 1777. Huh. And its authenticity is somewhat suspect. Now, in the 18th and 19th centuries, these stories of Welsh Indians were extremely popular. Governor Robert Dwindle of Virginia even put forth a staggering sum of $500 to finance an expedition to find the Welsh Indians he believed to be west of the Mississippi. Lewis and Clark even kept an eye out for the Welsh Indians on their famous expedition. Unable to reconcile the physical evidence and their perceptions of the Native Americans combined with the insidious assumptions of European superiority in all things, wildly speculative ideas about ancient European visitors rose up to fill the gaps. But except for a brief period of Viking contact in the 10th and 11th centuries, there is no evidence that such contact ever happened and quite a bit of evidence that it didn't happen. So the Fort Hills that stretch across the southern Appalachians and the Cherokee legend of a conflict with some other people may very well be related. There supposedly is evidence of a war that fought on an impressive scale uh, on North American soil a very long time ago, but we may never know the parties involved in the conflict. But we can be fairly certain that none of them were Welsh. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of where the theory of like Fort Mountain came from, is that it was like the the wall or the ruins of the wall from, from that war, right? All right, so regarding the wall, now we were going to start talking about some of the, the, like the more physical uh, evidence that's out there that, that people have pointed towards and connected with the Munai people. That would be the wall at Fort Mountain. And it's a 850-foot-long stone wall that varies in height from 2 to 6 feet and stretches along the top of the ridge. It's obviously very purposely put there. It was structured. It has uh, pretty impressive curves and lines to the shape of it. Uh, we'll add some photos to the feed on this so that uh, all y'all can see what we're talking about. Yeah, it almost has like armament, like where it would be, like if you were throwing or shooting like bow and arrow, um, you know, or, or using like a spear where you could essentially like get someone stuck in a corner. It definitely, a really interesting sight. It, it feels like defensive, um, feels like what the turrets of a castle, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I find really, really interesting about that is, so the people want to connect these to the Moon-Eyed people, and obviously they were intelligently built, they were structured, they were made in a very specific way. The The scientific work that has gone in to date them has actually put them around the 4th or 5th century. That's kind of blowing yeah. my mind. So four or 500 AD is when these things were supposedly um, erected. So who knows what they looked like uh all the way back then. 
So yeah, that's they're really small. <laughs> I mean, they're yeah, but I mean, could you imagine what they would have been? You know, almost you know, fifteen hundred years ago. Oh yeah, I'm sure it was it was wild. I I, I can't imagine like on that site because it does just kind of like circles the the top of the mountain up there. No, um, you have to climb almost all the way to the peak to get to like the opening where you can really see a lot of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's just below the highest point on that that one peak. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, the Moon-Eyed People's lands were supposedly bookended by these stone structures. Now, this wall in Fort Mountain is supposedly one of them, and the other one would be the one that you mentioned earlier, the Devil's Backbone in Indiana. Now, I've been to that one, and long before I started doing paranormal research or was into any of this type of stuff, uh, I went there, and it's, um, it's a haunting place. There's definitely an energy, a vibe there. You know, people argue left and right that this uh, this stone structure is a naturally formed shape due to the flowing river nearby. I don't I don't think so. Um, there are parts of it that are simply too perfect, and the way that it's actually shingled, it um it seems very purposefully built. So uh, I, I call BS on that one, and I'm, I'm anybody who's listening here, if you want to prove me wrong, send me the data, like show it to me, but. I also encourage you to go out there and see it for yourself because there's something else going on there. So I'd be interested to see if, you know, if, you know, next time we make a road trip, maybe we hit up Fort Mountain and then make our way over to Kentucky to check out Devil's Backbone and kind of contrast and compare. Yeah, man, once we can teleport, it's going to be so dope to be able right? to do all these things. <laughs> oh, that's going to be awesome. Now, normally when we, uh, when we choose a subject like this, you know, you and I typically go to the location that we're talking about and we do an investigation. And to a certain extent, we, we did. We definitely went out and we explored the ruins of Fort Mountain. And there's definitely something to them. There's, a, there's an energy there. I don't know uh, what you call it. It definitely has a vibe. But it, we didn't really get to do like a deep, hardcore investigation on it because, uh, one, this is the first time we've ever done anything like that. So it was kind of new terrain to cover and a lot of uh, things that we didn't take into consideration for preparation, which we will take care of the next time we go out. And then uh, the second part is the next day the elements were against us. Also a bear, an adorable bear. Barreled. Barreled. Yeah. Um, if you want to hear more <laughs> we'll about... some pictures of Barreled also uh, on the feed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll drop some pictures of Barreled. Now, if you want to hear the story about Barreled, though, you're going to have to go back and listen to our Patreon-only feed. It's one of the first exclusive episodes we did over there. Yeah, apparently there's a large uh, bear population period in that park where you're almost guaranteed to see a black bear or two. Oh, yeah. And they're northern Georgia. Well, and at this point, they're desensitized to humans. So they like Mm -hmm. they're just used to us being around. So they come around and we have tasty things. So, yep. (laughs) Now, how would you describe the feeling that you got when we were walking through those ruins? Um, I would say it, it, it definitely felt. I mean, I don't want to compare it to something that people don't to have an experience but it's like when you're in a haunted house and things start happening and you get just like your your hair stands up and it's like kind of tingly on your arms and not in a bad way but it was just like there's energy here that is like kind of permeating through these ruins and i think that it it just felt like a sacred spot it felt like they were protecting it for a reason possibly if they were 
we we would talk about Welsh if, if if they were pagans and they were doing pagan rituals and stuff up there, or if they were using that as like a sacred spot or something. But I feel like something was either untapped or unlocked, like in that area, and that it's a really important place that needs to be protected. Uh, I don't know. I think it's funny that you bring up uh you know pagan because I definitely got those kind of vibes uh, walking up there. I think that's the most logical. You know what I mean? Like, is if if Europeans landed and, and settled and they were pagan and did those kinds of things, you know, talk about like the fourth, fifth century. Well, yeah. And like be, people were doing or, or thinking about. And because the, the stone structures and the way that they're shaped and, and molded, it is very like, feels Gaelic to me almost. It's almost like a old world Irish stone stacking, but you know, they didn't have the, the slate shingling that they normally use. So they had to use whatever was local. Right down to the way that they, the the walls curve as opposed to coming to a, a right angle, you know? Yeah, it was like very like serpent-like the way it was sprawled throughout, you know? Yeah. Well, I definitely got those, those same sensations that you did. Um, but the further we went and the longer we were up there, the best way that I can describe it is by the time we were on our way down, um, I feel like I was like at the the very beginning stages of a psychedelic experience. That's what it felt like. Yeah, I could definitely attest to that. Um, I think that it was like that come up kind of like you get the butterflies in your stomach and you're just experiencing um, like the new reality that you're in. It almost was like we were in a fog, like you, we entered this clearing and where you can see a, a lot of the structure and we were all just kind of like Alejandro wandered off, which isn't super Un, not it's, it's it's not a you know a strange occurrence but he just went right off on his own and even meg was sitting around and we were just kind of i remember just walking around and you sat down and was stacking rocks and we were all just kind of taking it in and i felt like we were all in our own world just kind of like we had entered into a new space you know when, when, when we were out there yeah the uh the stone stacking so folks when whenever we first walked into this area and we walked right up to the the stone walkways and and walls that they had created, I immediately set all of my crap down and I just started stacking stones and um I don't know why I was compelled to do it, but i w- I did it for like almost fifteen minutes. I made like three towers of rocks and then I was like, okay, now I'm good and then I went on about my business but I felt like I almost dis- uh, disassociated there for a minute. Like I checked out and I was just like, rock, rock. <laughs> yeah, almost like we have to like help fix this wall. We have to put it back. You know, like we have to build this thing back up. Yeah, know? maybe. So the uh, the stone wall, that's considered to be like one of the largest pieces of evidence that supposedly there there was a, uh, a European-based settlement that, that came through. The other thing that popped up is the now world-famous Moon-Eyed People statue, which you and I saw when we went to the museum in Murphy. Yeah. So the history on this thing is, uh, according to Billy Ray Palmer, who has taught uh, Appalachian and Cherokee history for 30 years, and who was also the guy who was up on Brown Mountain whenever we went up there and saw the lights that one night, the uh, the statue or this effigy is referred to as the Moon-Eyed People. After a Native American removal in 1838, a senator in Raleigh introduced a bill to make this the county seat. His name was Archibald Murphy, hence the name of the town, Murphy. At the time in 1838, they sold off Murphy in six-acre lots, and a fellow by the name of Felix Ashley bought six acres. In 1841, he was digging up his property for planting, and he unearthed the Moon-Eyed People effigy. 
He put it on a sled and drug it back up to his house and leaned it up against the well. And it stayed there for uh, several decades until after his death and some antiquity dealers came through and they're like, whoa, what is, what is this? So that, uh, that statue is now on display at the Murphy Cherokee Museum. And if y'all live locally, I highly suggest you go check it out. But those are the only two real pieces of physical evidence that exist. And then there's the Cherokee legend itself, which to me, that actually lends a considerable amount of credence to it when you take into consideration that the Cherokee had wild stories, wild tales. Their stories of the paranormal and supernatural are, whoa, intense. But Yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah, but the Moon-Eyed people was very, very grounded. Like, this is not some sort of supernatural entity. Uh, it's just a bunch of short albino Ewoks with mange that uh, um, were, <laughs> were living in a land that uh, the Creek tribe wanted. And so they moved in on it. I, I think that's the most plausible explanation. If they were real, then, yeah, they were probably some sort of wayward explorers that found their way over to the Americas in the, the first several centuries of the new millennium. And then, um, yeah. Well, I think they're aliens, so <laughs> that's where I am. Do you really? I mean, I think that it's a really interesting theory. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's probably just my favorite, you know, theory of all of it is just watching Hellier, as you know, we've recommended everyone do. It's an awesome show. Oh yeah, with yeah. them uh, talking about like making that connection with the Hopkinsville Goblin case and making the connection with um, the aliens using the cave system to move around. The very same cave system that leads into supposedly where the Moon-Eyed people were. Exactly. Um, I just think that is too much synchronicity to pass up. And it's a juicy story. I can't, I can't go for aliens. Uh, like, if we were going to go for aliens, like, I might be, um, I would be more willing to kind of lean into Jacques Vallée, Passport to Magonia type of theory, which is, Maybe this is just one of those thin spots where, you know, we can peer into a couple of, of, you know, layered dimensions that we normally can't see. Like his theory with UFOs, with the fey folk, with all of that stuff is that it's all the same thing, but it takes us, our consciousness, in order to create or uh, to connect this like psychical circuit that processes the information into a way that you, the individual, will be able to see it and understand it. Which is why sometimes you can have a whole bunch of people witnessing the same thing, but they all describe it very differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We've experienced that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So maybe the Moon-Eyed people are some sort of fey folk. You know, maybe they were uh, bleeding in from another dimension. Maybe they're, you know, multidimensional beings. But I don't know, man. Uh, the, the more and more I, I read into this, the one thing that stands out to me is that the Cherokee were just like, no, you you are a different people. Uh, we don't like you, <laughs> but you're just a different people. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I can't go aliens. Besides, if they were greys, they wouldn't have long white beards because greys are hairless. Yeah, but, yeah, I mean, I hear that. <laughs> but also, like, you look at the picture, the, the, if you look at the statue, it, it definitely leads you to think that they were aliens. And I think you lead, like, you look into just how adamant everyone was about them being unable to be around in the daylight and having the big black eyes and, you know, oh, big blue eyes. Great. Oh yes. Big blue eyes yeah. and not being able to 
um, like being weak during the full moon and that the Cherokees knew that. And it's, you know, I, I just think that's wild. Well, the, the reason that they were at their weakest during the full moon is because they couldn't see as well at night because the full moon was too bright for them. So that's why that's why they decided to, to attack on the full moon is because they would have a, a tougher time seeing the Cherokee coming, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, it's wild. A lot of speculation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and incredibly short. So, so bear that in mind. You have a, a Cherokee tribe calling these guys incredibly short. So three, three to four is the average, but they said that there were a couple that, that went up to about five feet. But we're, we're talking short. Real that's short. Like the, like the tallest are five feet. Like that's like ab- abnormal there yeah. for them. So uh, let's uh, – if if they were in fact the remnants of like a uh, a Welsh or European um, settlement that traveled over here centuries and centuries ago, it would make sense that they would probably keep to themselves and over, over a certain amount of time, you're going to look at a lot of double dipping into the gene pool. A lot of inbreeding. So it would potentially make sense uh, to explain their deformities and, and you know, the, the odd height and, you know, little pot bellies, the albinism even. Yeah, all of that stuff. You know, you think about, like, reasons why. Like, it definitely would have been a heightened, like, especially if it was a trait that was common in those few people that were there, you know. Right. It would just keep keep getting passed down and passed down. Yeah. So, there's a theory. You know, we if, go coming up with stuff on the spot. I mean, if we, uh, if th- I think that's a line of thought that I would like to pursue the more we look into this, because you know, next time we do this, we're we're gonna go hit up the museum again and actually talk to some of the local experts. We'll do a, a much more extended stay and study on the actual structure itself, and then we'll also take the time to head on over to Kentucky and check out the Devil's <laughs> Backbone and see what kind of stuff we can figure out from that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I, I can't wait to get back. That that place was wild, and there's certainly energy there. Like, if anything, we we truly were not able to investigate it all, but but getting up there and being out there, it had it had some really really interesting vibes, and there's definitely something there that we could oh reach out and, and possibly communicate with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we will definitely test that theory as soon as it gets uh, warm enough. We have to get our seasonal investigations under control. Absolutely. I think we're past the camping for this year. Now, speaking of that cold weather, uh, that actually reminds me. Um, be sure to join us next week for the XV Planus uh, Holiday Roundup and year-end spectacular. Uh, this is going to be completely off the cuff, completely full of a, a reverent humor, probably a lot of eggnog, um, some some recaps and some discussions on the future. And uh, it's going to be... Uh, it's gonna be a good time. Yeah, we always have a good time. We get all our, we get all our people together. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, Walker, you got any final thoughts regarding this uh, bizarre piece of Appalachian history or mystery? I should say. No, I, I I think we covered everything as 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 like a little taster for the for when we do a deeper dive next season. Um, I really think that this is something that is really fun to investigate. There's there's so much speculation and I am a I'm I'm an American history nut and just going through all of these guys like John Sevier and um like the the different people that were like writing books about them in the 1700s and talking to Cherokee chiefs about what their forefathers said about this like mysterious people that disappeared and that there's no physical evidence for. Like we found evidence for lots of other things but there's been nothing found about 
about this, like concrete. Yeah. So it's definitely something that we're going. Yeah, this is. You could call this a teaser uh, because that that's a subject that you and I are going to do a deeper dive in the upcoming year. And so we will definitely be revisiting this again, probably with more information and um, hopefully with a lot more uh, firsthand boots on the ground uh, commentary about the uh, about the structure and, and the legend itself. Yeah. And we'll get to recap on how Barold is doing and how his family is and, you know, just making sure that that people are not feeding him food. Yes, absolutely. And no sugar plates. No sugar plates next time. <laughs> I love his his uh I love his guile for making sure that there is no trash, but <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's necessary. All right, folks. Well, uh, before we wrap this up, Walker, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me and thank you so much for all of your hard work this year. And uh, I can't wait to see you at the holiday party. And to our listeners, tell us what you think. You know, whenever this episode drops and you get a chance to listen to it, go back to the episode posting on whatever your preferred social media is and give us your theories. Give us your thoughts. Tell us what you think this bizarre story of the Moon Eye people is all about. Was it even real? Um, and if it was, what were they? Were they uh, goblins? Were they greys? Uh, were they Ewoks with mange? Who knows? Uh, or were they Welsh explorers? You know, who knows? Yeah, who knows? We're trying to figure it out as much as we can. <laughs> All right. Well, Brother Walker, I will uh, catch you at the holiday party, man. Yeah, without a doubt. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, everywhere as XVPlanus. And you can follow my personal misadventures and music projects at Folds and Floods on those same platforms. Links for both are in the show notes. If you like what we do here, head on over to iTunes or Spotify to rate and review us. And tell your friends about us. Tell your families about us. Hell, yell at random people at the library about us. Well, maybe not that one. You'll probably get in trouble. You can support us by going to www.patreon.com slash xvplanis and subscribing to gain access to our exclusive content, including the Patreon-only series Transmissions from the Void, where I interview people from all walks of life about their paranormal experiences. Be sure to check out all of the great shows on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network, like Grognostics, Ad Hoc History, Unearthing Paranormalcy, and so many more. You can find them by going to www.tgmpodcastnetwork.com. The show is produced in Durham, North Carolina, and is written, edited, and scored by yours truly. Music from the show can be found on my Bandcamp page for Folds and Floods or anywhere you stream your music. Our new logo was created by Sonny Sulak and Rencher Lan, and our social media is managed by Megan Winning. No part of this show or its music may be reproduced without consent. Copyright Folds and Floods Productions. Once again, I am your host, Flood, and this has been XV Planets. Thank you for being a part of the journey so far. I'll see you in the between. In abumbratio, in fluctus, subvelo.